to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast with myself, Chris Cates, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are in Ezekiel, as well as a few more letters to uh, churches or people uh, through Peter and Timothy. And so uh, let's start with Ezekiel. And uh, we're making a transition here. Uh, we kind of left off uh, with a, a bit of a, a cliffhanger, uh, a bit of a, a, a statement that Nebuchadnezzar's now heading into Jerusalem, but we don't find out what happens and whether Jerusalem falls. I mean, certainly we know from history, but um, it feels a little bit odd that Ezekiel suddenly takes this very shift to go, okay, let's talk about judgment on the nations, and then we'll mm-hmm. get back to the story of whether Jerusalem fell or not. And so uh, so there's sort of this in-between. And, and, uh, and language and judgment on the nations is not uncommon. We've seen this in others. Like We've even seen it. Um, it, it even follows a bit of a, a circular pattern like Amos and others. And so um, and Babylon themselves are left out of the judgment, which is actually a, l- a little bit bizarre because most of the time it includes some of the agents of of judgment for Ezekiel, though. In his book, Babylon is the instrument that God is using. And so um, judgment will be dealt with in other writers and other places. And so, um, but what will be a theme through, or, or maybe you saw as a theme as you read through this all, is just the sort of pride of these countries yeah. that watched Israel get destroyed, watched Jerusalem fall, and they were rejoicing in it. They were happy about it. Um, maybe they they even um, profaned uh, God's name by being like, look, God's abandoned them and things like that. Um, and, and God's not having any of it. And so um, he's going to deal with each of these nations uh, for some of that, starting with, with the Ammonites. And so they're just proud that Jerusalem has fallen, that the temple has been destroyed and rejoiced over that. I think one of the things we see when we read this chapter is that God's purpose continues to be his glory among all people, not just Israel, among all nations. And this prophecy to Ammon ends with, then you will know that I am Yahweh. So we can think back to the to the fact that Israel was supposed to be a welcoming nation to all people, that God may be glorified among all people through the behavior of Israel, but they refused to do that. And so instead, God is showing his glory to all people through Israel's judgment and suffering. Yeah. And the Edomites, the Philistines, the, the Moabites, it's, they're all included. And all of them probably had the sort of like, ah, they're finally getting what they deserve kind of thing. And God's sort of turning around going, well, don't worry, I'm going to give you what you deserve too. And so um, it's all sort of included in some of this language. And then we move into uh, multiple chapters uh, about Tyre. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so let me give some background of Tyre and why um, some of the language and, and would probably actually sound pretty shocking. I think the original audience would be like, come on, you got to be king. Tyre's not going to fall um, because Tyre was actually at this time uh, historically uh, an island off of the land, off of the mainland. And so um, about 600 yards off the mainland was this large rock area that people built a city on. The, the, the Phoenicians built uh, this city. Uh, they were seafaring people. They had their own navy um, and they weren't... Um, they weren't a people group geography. So as we just mentioned, all the countries, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the the Edomites, like they were a people group in a geographic region as opposed to the Phoenicians who were really spread out and had like states and capitals of those states. And this is one of those places. And so, um, but it was well defended. It was impregnable. Um, it uh, they were involved in a lot of trade. So they're actually quite wealthy as a nation as well. And so um, 
it actually wasn't until Alexander the Great builds like this whole rock bridge that the city finally actually falls like hundreds of years after uh, what Ezekiel talks about here. But uh, they will be affected from this point on in terms of their commerce, uh, in terms of their independence. And so um, what Ezekiel says still comes to pass, but it's a long process. Uh, and and the problem that Tyre had is they gloated once again, just like all the other nations. They gloated over the fall of Jerusalem. Um, and the language that, that Ezekiel will use is that this the city, this impregnable city that would almost be shocking to the audience to hear um, they're, they're going to be going down to this place of the death and there's no resurrection they will stay there this imagery is important because Ezekiel will talk about resurrection eventually uh, in in some of his uh, pictures that we'll read starting next week but um, this idea that that these people of Tyre Tyre will finally fall it will be destroyed and that they're going to go down to to this chaotic abyss this the shield death and they're not coming back yeah. And so when you think about like in these Old Testament times and people associated cities and people with specific gods, this kind of prophecy entire falling is going to show the glory of God because they will say, oh, the God of Israel is truly more powerful than our God or our power. Yeah. I mean, this is this is God flexing his might to, to the people to, that in a way that would almost be surprising. It's like, no, no, God really is the God over all things, including yeah. even some of the most powerful um, groups and nations and probably their representative gods that we know of. And so so um, there's a lament for Tyre, and the, the word lament is is sometimes we think of it like as like a, a sadness for it. But uh, in this, it's not like God is sad over it, but but it's certainly presented as this idea of like, look, you were great and you were powerful. You were like this ship, and you were adorned, and you were well built, and you had all these trades, uh, but you, you became shipwrecked. That you were once powerful and pregnant, and you celebrated the fall of Jerusalem, but now that pride has led you to, to just be destroyed. And Babylon's going to cut off your trade. Uh, it's going to take Egypt, and it's going to cause you to sort of lose your dependence. And your I independence. think the bigger picture here that we can see too is that God sees and he He doesn't resent that a city has become influential and strong. But to God, being a city with power and influence is an incredible opportunity for human flourishing and growth. But instead, he is grieving that this is going to come to an end because Tyre is using it to oppress people and for their own gain instead of for flourishing like God designed. Yeah. And then it becomes very directed at, at the king or the prince of Tyre himself. So not just the city, but but the, the individual who was over it all, who said things like, I am a god, I sit on the seat of gods, the heart of the seas, which is actually fairly Canaanite language uh, that, that we'll find elsewhere uh, if you read Canaanite material. And so um, this, this, this individual is taking on very much this prideful identity uh, from sort of the pagan nations. And, um, and, and this first section of chapter 28 is very much, um, there's not a, t- a ton of symbolism in the first 10 verses, very much is what the king did, why the king was prideful and, and that he was sort of destroyed or judged because of his pride. Uh, but it's really the second section that starts getting into a lot of weird analogies as you read it. There's very much a language of Eden all over the place. Uh, and there's a lot of guesses as to what analogy is going on. And, and we're going to see Ezekiel sort of do this, use um, bigger analogies tied into uh, sort of these judgments, both of of the King of Tyre and of Pharaoh um, and of Egypt itself. And so um, we get this idea that there was um, some sort of rebellion tied into sort of Eden or where God dwelled. Uh, Some think it's Adam. uh, And if you are reading the Septuagint, there's some language to let you go that direction. But um, uh, it seems like there's, 
to to a whole nother crowd there's there's an interpretation that's much more um that there's there's a rebellion that happens that that seems to be of divine origin i mean the the character is called a cherub in the text and so um whether it's satan or whether it's sort of a a, another known stories this sort of mythologies and when i say mythologies i don't mean like not true things but but stories that are very common to explain sort of greater truths and so um mythologies i would say look there was a rebellion against the, the ultimate the most powerful god or being and and whether ezekiel's picking up some of that or not but but ultimately the, the point the the drive home is this idea that there's there was one who thought themselves a god or thought themselves had the pride to, to sort of challenge the ultimate god or being and and fell and so tyre the king of tyre has that same sort of fall and so um Ezekiel's using very vivid and metaphoric and image-rich language to talk about the pride of the king of Tyre and whether we take it as just like Satan was prideful and tried to take on God or maybe like um, um, Hades tried to take on Zeus and fell like that is what the king of Tyre is is doing and so um, it could be either it could be Satan it could be borrowed imagery um, certainly in in the cosmology that scripture presents, it will eventually play in that this is much more a picture of maybe the pride of Satan or the angels um, that, that ultimately fall. But um, yeah, so there's, there's metaphor, there's a lot of image rich stuff going on and, and we'll see that again with, like I said, as, as we keep talking through this. So a lot of what we look at in scripture is we call typology. We say Jesus is the better Moses or Jesus is the better David. And so this could be a sort of typological picture of evil. And that's how, you know, we would probably encourage you to approach it. It doesn't mean there's not a literal interpretation there somewhere, but, but what we are to learn and see here is kind of the whole, like the fullness of evil and wickedness and how different it is in God and his goodness and his holiness. And I do want to jump back briefly just to the um, prophecy against the Prince of Tyre and note that uh, Ezekiel talks a lot about the Prince of Tyre using his wisdom, uh, but he uses his wisdom to increase his own wealth and pride. And I think it's worth stepping back and reflecting and understanding that lots of us, all of us have some form of wisdom. And, and are we using that for our own gain or for, again, coming back to this God's heart of human flourishing within cities and communities and families? Yeah. And so um, there is tacked on the end of chapter 28, sort of this prophecy against Sidon as well. Um, and and it's interesting because that into the end, there's, there's definitely this idea of like um, these countries thinking, oh, like God's abandoned his people, like they're, God, they're, they're disinherited from the world. Um, and God saying to these nations, go, look, I'm bringing judgment to you guys too. And guess what? I haven't disinherited my people. They're being judged. They're being purged in a way, but I haven't abandoned them and they will be restored. And this is going to be coming. Yeah. And then we move to a prophecy uh, against Egypt itself. Uh, and once again, I think we're dealing with a real historical figure or nation, um, but we're also dealing with the sort of myth poetry background that might be going on as well. Um, and uh, what was common and, and something we've seen multiple times in scripture, and it's probably something to be really well aware of because it becomes a, a constant idea, um, is the chaotic deep and that there's um, a, a being or a monster, this Leviathan, this sea serpent, a dragon, all this tied into the chaotic deep that, that is all opposed in some 
some ways to Yahweh. I mean, I think it's even why when we finally get the picture of, of, um, the throne room in Revelation, um, the sea is glassy. It's for once not chaotic. It is finally defeated. And we have the glassy sea in front of the throne, but you have this idea of chaos working against the God, the gods. And so, um, there became this sort of, creature being as part of the larger mythology, um, not, not just within Israel, but all the surrounding places of, of this sort of dragon, um, this sort of creature that represented the, the antithesis of, of order and the, the work of a truly benevolent God. And so with that backdrop, what we see Ezekiel go, Pharaoh, you're like the sea dragon. You're like this chaotic anti-God force. But guess what? God has victory over that too. And, and he can even pick you up out of, out of the Nile and, and there's going to be your people sticking to you like fish and throw you out into the wilderness and you'll be eaten up. And, and it's even language we get out of Psalm 74, that God crushed the heads of Leviathan and you gave him a food to the creatures of the wilderness. And so this very much idea that once again, can, can easily be tied in sort of a bigger cosmological way to Satan, the, the, the adversary, the dragon, which we will see also in revelation, this, this idea uh, of this anti God force. And once again, the, the, the reason is that Pharaoh says like the Nile's my own. And it's sort of like, well, actually Pharaoh, it's not your own. And, and Pharaoh, you don't control it. And you think your nice little war- ordered world is great, but it's going to be turned upside down. And, and, and I, I have more power than you. And the people of the ancient world would have sort of picked up on this messaging fairly readily. Yeah, well, and so I think, you know, we just hit the center point of these prophecies against other nations, and God talks a lot about scattering and gathering. And so we see oftentimes scattering as a form of judgment, even to Israel, but then we see him promise again to gather and restore Israel. And then we move into this prophecy about Egypt that Chris just mentioned, and we see a messianic promise in here too. There's this idea of a horn, which oftentimes represents power, kingdoms of the world, and how God in his plan to overthrow those who are putting themselves in his place is creating a place that we know that our Messiah Christ will rule. Yeah. And there's a lament uh, over Egypt and, and it's a reminder of Israel's history with Egypt. Israel had sort of turned to Egypt in the face of the Babylonians and sort of maybe sought out some help or refuge. And, and God's reminding Egypt here of saying like, look, you weren't any, you're like a broken reed. Like as soon as they leaned on you, you broke and, um, and, and you failed. And so there's some messaging that they'll sort of make a mini comeback, but they never return to the power that they were. Um, and Egypt's going to fall to Babylon. The arm is going to be broken, just like the horn is going to be taken away. This this arm, uh, the, the might of Egypt is going to eventually be, uh, it's going to fall. So yeah, so now we know that the Babylon and the Moabites and the Ammon, all these people are going to know that Yahweh is God. And here we see that Yahweh is God and not Pharaoh. And just like we moved from Tyre to the king of Tyre, we're going to move uh, from Egypt to Pharaoh himself. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, um, I hate headers, but the prophecy... Uh, here it speaks of Pharaoh, but it also speaks beyond that. And so, um, there, there's the individual identity, but there's also sort of the, still this tie into the larger Egypt. Uh, and so, um, in some ways, uh, Ezekiel saying to the Egyptians, Hey, remember Assyria? Remember how awesome they were? They're like they were pretty powerful back in the day. But, but once again, I think the accusation here becomes this sort of, um, accusation against Syria or against Egypt by using Syria. Um, uh, but also this larger mythological cosmological idea, you just get this image rip, image rich language. And if you read through it, you're like, I'm a little lost. I don't know what's going on here. It's understandable. There's, there's language of Eden in here. There's a larger 
worldview of of the world and how it like the world's this disc and there's the the underworld watery grave shield there's there's earth itself and then there's the heavens which are the waters above and and that's actually where god dwells and and a lot of the idea is that there's this tree that runs through this world and, and not a literal tree but this sort of larger cosmic tree and, and so that was always there in language and i think what ezekiel's doing is talking about this tree but but making it more almost like a like a, a person or a figure this 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 tree had pride and this tree ultimately was cut down and the other trees like lamented it and and some of those went down into the ground with that tree and so um, once again i actually think we're picking up on very similar idea that we just saw in, in the previous and saying, look, Assyria was prideful and, and it ultimately the pride cost it and, and, and ultimately caused it to be cut off and die. Just like there used to be this being within God's garden and in God's world and God's presence that because of pride had to be dealt with and, and others had to go down in, in, into death with it. And so um, you, you once again, get this big picture idea, these, these images that's really about sort of pride and Ezekiel's pulling in language that even non-Israelites would, would understand and connect to. Um, and, and not only that, but the presence of God and all this sort of in this language and, and connecting it to this larger cosmology connected to Assyria and then how Egypt is, is, is on the same path that Assyria was on. So I hope you're seeing here the importance of imagery and how it oftentimes is meant to point to something else that we've already read in scripture or we will read in scripture. But as you're reading, you know, I think as as probably Westerners with a Western education, we tend to read and understand things in a certain way, but we kind of need to put ourselves in a little bit more of an, an Eastern or a non-Western mindset as we read and read with the concept of pictures and follow these picture stories that we're reading throughout scripture. Again, like Chris mentioned, beginning in Genesis one. Yeah. Sometimes just when you get into judgmental and even more so apocalyptic language, there's just so many image rich pieces. I mean, we're certainly going to see this in revelation when there's all these animal faces on the throne and guess what? All those animal faces are stuff that if you were understanding Roman emperorism, like, you would understand these images and what they, their role is. And same thing happens as we move into the next section. Once again, get the sea dragon idea and all this kind of stuff into their ancient minds. They're like, Oh yeah, chaos disorder, the things opposed to um, the, the one who wants to bring order and, and, and stuff like that to this world. And so um, those things would, would immediately come into their minds when it doesn't as often to us, we don't live in sort of the, 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 the myths of those times. We live in different kind of myths often actually in our time. And so um, there's just a reminder, Egypt's like, you're not going to go away with this. You're nothing special. And, and you think of yourself as, as the bringers of order, but you're actually the force of chaos, like you and your empire, the whole system, and it's going to be destroyed. And, and what I'm and Yahweh saying, what I'm bringing to this world is a cure for that, a, a dealing with death. I'm bringing things back into the order, and I want my household restored. And ultimately, I'm going to do that with the whole earth, and not just a garden. I'm going to make this household out of this whole earth, and it's bigger than you, and you're really nothing special on the map. And frankly, God's saying, like, I can handle you. Like, as much as chaos as you think you want to bring, I can, I can deal with that. Let's remember, as we think about Egypt here, the incredible abuses and injustices Pharaoh and Egypt in general afflicted and inflicted on other people. I think I become weary pretty quickly of reading all these prophecies about destruction and judgment, but I also believe that God is good and God represents all things good. And so I must believe and we must believe that um, that God is judging people for not valuing and not caring for his image bearers. And as well as the pride component with that. But these countries were, were awful to people. 
And then we get um, a connection to Ezekiel being uh, Israel's watchman. And, and a watchman would sit on a, on a tower or sit in a high place. They were sort of a sentry whose sole job mostly was to sound an alarm if there's danger coming to the city. Sometimes they brought good news too. Uh, and, and there's imagery of that in scripture. But um, the majority of the job is to make sure that no one's coming to attack and, and to speak, to come to the people and say, look, this is about to happen. We need to be ready for this. And so they have a responsibility. Um, and both Ezekiel and the individuals within Israel like have responsibilities to Ezekiel to say the message and to the Israelites to correctly respond to the message. Um, and it gets into sort of this, this tie in sometimes there's very corporate language in scripture, but here in Ezekiel it is very much individual. Each person is going to have to answer for how they respond to, uh, the, the watchman's message. Yeah. So we do see here the book turn back from, to focusing on Israel from focusing on other nations. And so it's interesting to kind of follow, um, this idea of Ezekiel as a watchman and what's coming up right after all of these prophecies towards other nations. Yeah. And, and there's an unpacking. All right. What, what about the people who, who just ignore the message? And what about the people who, um, had been so bad, but ultimately repented and, and, and were given m- more of a description of the kind of God that, that we have who doesn't delight in, in the death of anyone who, if, if anyone, even, even with a terrible, wicked past of idolatry, repents and come that like he is ready for that and he desires that for his people. Yeah. God is always open and ready and willing to forgive should people repent. And I do appreciate that he says, you know, basically verbatim, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We know that our God hates death. He designed and created us to live eternally. And those of us in Christ will. Um, but he also insists that even the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver them when they sin. And this points to the fact that we do need a savior out of ourselves, outside of ourselves. And that points us to our need for Christ, for a Messiah and for a ruler. Yeah, and then we finally get the news that we've been waiting for basically since chapter 24. And like, all right, Nebuchadnezzar was on the doorstep and just invading the city. What has happened? And a, a messenger has shown up to from Jerusalem to tell Ezekiel, look, your prophecy came true. Jerusalem has fallen, the sort of sad news. If anything, this is like the best breakup of weeks we've ever had in the Old Testament, I think. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but the news has finally come uh, at this moment. Yeah. So jump to the New Testament, Second uh, Peter, Second Timothy, uh, and just the density of some of these books and some of these sections uh, versus Ezekiel, where you got multiple chapters dealing with like a large concept. Here you've got just so much packed into each sentence that's a little bit harder to sometimes uh, get through. But um, yeah, we start off uh, this week with Peter just pointing out that this hope, this message, like he's not just making up it anywhere. Peter's like, I was literally there. Like the most, one of the most tremendous moments in Jesus's life that I told you about, like hearing the very voice, voice of God himself affirm Jesus and like Moses was there and Elijah was there. Like Peter, Peter's like, I was there. And then he makes, I would argue the most crazy statement right after that. And he says, but now for you, you people who were not there, you have something even more confirmed then being a literal eyewitness to the moment, he says, this word that we're bringing to you, this message that we have on behalf of God. And, and he reminds him, look, this message means us speaking what God has called us to speak is not simply interpretation or our best thoughts on like what we experience and stuff like that. Like this is the message that God is bringing directly to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, let's not take for granted that we have this in all of scripture and we carry it around in books and on our phones and everything like that. This is truly God's word to us and brought along by the Holy Spirit and our source of ultimate truth. Yeah. And, and, um, 
Yeah, and Sarah, Sarah will point out there's there's sort of like these key objections that people are um, objecting to to the gospel and to the followers of Jesus. But uh, we move into the section where there's talk about false prophets and teachers, and and I think there's sort of three major areas of Paul Peter addresses, not as linear, but throughout the sort of ungodliness, the idolatry of the culture. There's a desire for wealth and power and influence. There's sexual immorality, often connected to feasts and stuff like that. And so there's all this idea, and 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 it's interesting because so much of it's not necessarily like always just false teaching, but but false living. Like they're false teachers. Yes. Cause they teach the wrong thing, but they're also doing the wrong things. Like they are living in a way that's not consistent uh, with anything that the message ultimately entails. And so Peter's like resist this, which I would argue is like a, a such an interesting point of, of first of first versus second Peter. Cause first Peter, you're really dealing with like outside persecution, those who want to like get rid of the church and stuff like that. And then second Peter is really dealing with problems on the inside. Those who have come into the church to say, ah, it's okay. You can be like the culture. And, and things like that. And and then Peter's sort of saying, no, we need to hold firm. We need to endure. Like, just like Noah didn't give in to, to the rest of the world and was righteous and, and and followed God, or Lot fled Sodom and Gomorrah. Be like Noah. Be like Lot. Don't be like the people that, that give in. And and he's constantly writing them, live a different life than the people in the world. And, and th- there's those teaching you to be like the world, to do the things of the flesh, but it's not true. Like, you follow teachings, but but there's some who went back to the things they did before, and that's worse off than having never heard it at all. So we see here that he's pointing out that false teachers are going to lead a lot of people astray by sensuality, teaching people that they can follow God or follow Christ in a way that's going to really satisfy your flesh and keep you comfortable. But Peter here is pointing out that that is false teaching and those are false practices. The verse that stands out to me the most in this passage is when he says, false teachers promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. So where are you seeing teachers around you or other people, Instagram, famous people, enslaved to certain patterns of behavior or practices? Is it power or is it their pursuit of comfort? Is it security? And then where do you yourself, where are you tempted to struggle or being overcome with certain temptations? Where is your desire for sensuality that may lead you down a path of false teaching? But again, it comes back to what we just talked about, how strongly and securely we need to be centered in the Word of God. Only freedom truly comes from Christ. It doesn't come from releasing uh, your discipline or self-control. Yeah. And and then Peter immediately moves into this sort of idea of the day of the Lord. Um, and and um, it's important to remember Peter has already called like back in Acts 2 that like we're in these last days and now he talks about the last days again but it seems like there's those who mocked who said alright when's when she's just really coming and it sure seems like nothing has really changed that much and and Peter points out that their attitudes are sort of like those in Noah's time that, that like one day unexpectedly it's the start to rain and Noah's ready for it and the rest of the people weren't and so be ready for Jesus' return like we don't know when it's going to happen and, and there are those who are probably acting like Noah was crazy and so if you're living a different way and they're acting like you're crazy well you're in good company and and why hasn't he come yet well because not everybody who's going to be saved is saved yet the the book of life is not to its fullness yet and there's still more souls that are going to be saved like god is being patient to save more people and to and for the gospel to continue to go forth so until then live distinct live holy lives because we just don't know when it's going to happen 
I'm just going to read 2 Peter 3, 9 again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his purpose as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I just come back to this verse really often, considering the patience that God showed me in my journey to faith. And it's a reminder that I need to trust his patience and long suffering, even in my own suffering and struggle and difficulties, so that others may come to a saving faith in him. Hang in there praying for people and endure suffering because it may mean that God is going to save that person later on yeah and, and once again pope peter run live distinctly and in, in this delay see it see it as god's saving work which which he reminds of paul actually taught you this too um and he also wrote a bunch of other things that are really hard to understand <laughs> and so uh, peter's pointing out that paul's not always the simplest but he does start making a connection and this is sort of a um one of the first occurrences of this, that, that some of what is being written and some of what is being, um, these letters that are going around the church and the stories of Jesus. Um, this is one of the first, at least internal language of, and, and, and Paul's sayings are like scripture, which up to that point, you would understand scripture if you were in this audience uh, as the old Testament. And so, um, they're starting to connect maybe some of the writings that are going around the new Testament churches to, uh, the writings of the Torah and the, like, uh, the, the prophets and stuff like that. And, and then Peter finishes with such a great language of grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. He closes with bringing it back to the main thing, which is to see God, to trust the process of sanctification and continue to grow in grace and knowledge knowledge. It takes me back to this idea of identifying counterfeit money is to become really comfortable with how the actual thing looks. It's worth being aware of false teaching and other circumstances that may pull you away from God. But the heart of that is to seek and study God himself through spending time with him in prayer, through studying his word and in community and growing in grace and knowledge of him. Yeah. So some final thoughts. So like I just mentioned, I really appreciate how Peter keeps the main thing, the main thing in this book. He starts with a reminder that we have everything we need according to his great grace and ends with reminding us to grow in that grace and knowledge. We don't have to feel threatened or intimidated by the world around us or by others' objections or false teachings because we are secure in truth and salvation. But we are to do the work of knowing and abiding in Christ through that study of his word and abiding in him. It's our peace and it's going to be our hope in all things. And so you know, Peter's purpose statement of this letter was to stir up the body in Christ so that they would recall truth at all times. And this should be our vision and desire as believers now as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I really liked kind of reading the, the sort of balance between first and second Peter, as I sort of mentioned a moment ago that so much of first Peter was dealing with the sort of the outside pressures, the persecution that come from those who didn't know Jesus and, and it just didn't really like the, the, the early Christians. And then you have second Peter where it's much more a warning of going, look, there's going to be those on the inside who are teaching and, and are probably teaching some version of Jesus, but, but they're going to push you to be much more like the culture, more palatable to the culture around you. And, and in some ways, um, teach them to sort of abandon the teachings of Jesus and maybe some of the things that are less likable and, and go ahead and indulge the flesh, go ahead and, and do those things. And, and there's very much that to this day. I mean, the, the church right now, we have sort of an outside cultural pressure that um, the church is not up to date and, and, and um, doesn't fit in and has backwards views on sexuality and all this kind of stuff that certainly people outside the church accuse it of. But there's also an internal group that is saying, you know what, like maybe we do need to redefine things and, and is using the culture to redefine God's word. And, and so I, I think second Peter hits much more on that group that, that is trying to, um, and just to use the buzzword to sort of deconstruct, to, to make things fit much more of the cultural norm. 
So Second Timothy. Yeah, so Paul is writing from prison and shortly before he's killed, probably by Nero. And we're going to see a lot of themes of perseverance and endurance and suffering. He's kind of thinking through his last words that he wants to share with with Timothy before he goes to see Jesus face to face. Yeah, this is like right on the doorstep of death. And Paul knows it, it seems like, and is just urging Timothy to show back up. And so uh, it's a common greeting. Uh, and once again, this very tender, Timothy, my beloved child, my beloved son uh, kind of language here. Yeah, it's a reminder that God puts the lonely in families, even if they don't sound like a or look like a traditional family. Yeah, and Paul expresses just how thankful he is for Timothy mm. and that he was he was brought up like Timothy was taught scriptures. He was taught by his Jewish grandma, his Jewish mama. Um, I remember going back to way back in Acts, like he had a Greek father, and so his dad may or may not have been a God fearing Yahweh Gentile. He probably wasn't given um, uh, maybe some of the, the uncircumcision and stuff like that, though some of the uncircumcision could have been uh, from the conservative crowd that would have been in Lystra as well. And so, um, but it's interesting just thinking through Timothy because he, he would have been told throughout his whole life that he was kind of an outsider. His dad's Greek. Um, it clearly, his dad didn't teach him scripture, but his, his mama did. And so um, he, he would have been probably treated his whole time as sort of this dirty blended Gentile. And now coming into to, to faith, like Paul is taking him under his wing and said like, look, we put our hands on you and, and you have this gift to go uh, teach and lead. And now Timothy, who is, been for so long treated as an outsider is now a leader and, and has been, is the one who's going to have to wield the scriptures and teach them to others. And Paul's like, look, that deposit, you have a good deposit that your mom and your grandma did in you. Now you've been affirmed by the elders, go and do your thing. Um, and not only that, but Paul starts getting into his imprisonment and, and how others are doubting his apostleship and is encouraging Timothy. He's like, look, don't be ashamed of this message. Like, he's like, I'm not ashamed of my chains. Like, it's the gospel, the message that's really that all that matters. And, and the Holy Spirit guards it. He puts it in us. Like, we have great confidence. Paul has great confidence in the message itself more than his circumstances. And he's reminding Timothy of that. So like Chris mentioned, Paul encourages Timothy at the very beginning of this to not be ashamed of Paul or to be ashamed of his faith. And I think it's really comforting probably for us to hear that some of the early believers struggled with shame for what they believed or how they suffered at times. You know, even Paul says uh, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And I don't think Paul would have necessarily had to exhort Timothy to not be ashamed if Timothy wasn't maybe feeling some of that. But his encouragement to Timothy is to remember the goodness and the appearing of God is what truly matters in the end. So sure, in the moment, we may feel some embarrassment or shame at what we believe or how we live. But when we look to our eternal God and we we consider him, we will know that our brief moments of embarrassment at sharing the gospel or believing the gospel will be forgotten once we see Christ face to face. And then Psalm 132, we sort of get this uh, recounting of, of the ark returning to Jerusalem in some ways, but uh, there's almost a greater connection here as the Psalm impacts. It's like, hey, remember how we worshiped in Ephrathah, like the celebration of, of the ark and God's presence coming into Jerusalem? Like how much more are we going to be like when David's throne forever is really established? Like that's going to be awesome worship. Yeah, it's cool here because David's talking about longing for a resting place for God um, and God's promise of one of David's sons on the throne, of course, which is Christ. And we see it fulfilled in Christ. And now we know that the resting and dwelling place of God is within us. All right. Next week.
So in Ezekiel, there's going to be some more passages that are very messianic. We're going to read about the idea of this good shepherd, the valley of dry bones. Consider as you read what kind of New Testament references or stories you can connect to these stories. Um, And even think about the New Testament and how it's going to impact your understanding of the scripture that we're reading in Ezekiel. And in the New Testament, just spend some time thinking through what the appearance of godliness, but denial of its power looks like in our current culture and place. Yeah. Uh, in the Old Testament, yeah, uh, Ezekiel's going to use language around this character named Gog because uh, we're about to get into like a whole lot of basically positive prophecy. Um, but there's this character Gog and um, and some people go all out in the deep end of who this character is, but we, this person exists and some of the other people around him exist. And so look back at Genesis 10 and read through maybe uh, the, the, some of these names and what might Ezekiel be doing when he's using and lifting some of these names and identities there. And then new Testament, Timothy very much uses the idea that a Christian's like a soldier and then an athlete and then a farmer. Um, think through like, what do these analogies really have in common? Is there a baseline idea that really connects um, each of those people that, that Timothy is really trying to unpack for us. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks y'all. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody.